Welcome to the Pain of Scale, the Notion podcast exploring the most critical challenges for venture-backed tech entrepreneurs along the startup, grow-up, and scale-up journey. Every two weeks, we speak to founders, experts, and venture capitalists from around the world about their experiences. Hi, Stephen. We're back. How are you? I'm very well, Paul. And yourself? I'm very well. And I'm actually very excited for today's episode because, believe it or not, the guest we're having was the first one we ever had on this podcast way before you were on with me. And that was actually three and a half years ago. Time flies. And it was a superb episode. I was actually listening to it this morning, just before the recording, to refresh me. And it is really on point. I'm wondering if there'll be any changes, any lessons learned. So maybe before before we introduce Drumroll, the guest, can you tell us what we're talking about today, Stephen? Yeah, so look, this, this is probably one of the most interesting and fascinating and important aspects of the kind of startup journey, which is the, the leadership journey of the startup founder, from founder to leader to ultimately to CEO. You know, we, we invest in extraordinary people and they all share this, the same kind of burning ambition as we do to build global category leading companies. And, you know, it's quite interesting when you think about these people, where does that come from? They all have something deep inside them. Lots of different reasons which lead them to go on these extraordinary journeys, you know. Often can be quite lonely, can be very stressful, but ultimately very rewarding journeys where that take them from initial idea bringing a small team around them, 10, 20 people, to possibly leading a company just a few years later, which will have hundreds of people, ultimately thousands of people. And that journey and transformation is one that requires kind of incredible grit, doesn't it? I mean, and determination. Yeah. But the thing that, that I, you know, I find most fascinating is this constant learning that the, uh, the best founders are on their constant kind of reinvention of themselves as they become, they move through those founder, leader, CEO, constantly balancing short, medium and long-term objectives, different ways of thinking, different models. And so we're going to dig into that with um, my guest today, sitting next to me, my dear friend, Chris Tottenham. And I think there's few people better in the European tech ecosystem to, to discuss this with than Chris. Now, Chris is one of the founding partners at Notion, but as you know, and hopefully some, many of our guests know, Notion was announced the day after the acquisition of a company called Message Labs that Chris was one of the founding members of. And amongst many other things, Chris's key responsibility at Message Labs was overseeing virtually every single senior hire as that business in eight years went from an idea to a team of 600 plus people and from zero revenues to 150 million. And um, Chris really shaped the leadership journey that that organization went on. And since then, obviously over the last 10 years, he's been investing in SaaS founders and, and supporting them to be, you know, if you like, the best versions of themselves, helping them shape their vision, their ambition, and and critically to hire ever ever more extraordinary people. So excited to uh, to have Chris alongside me and welcome to the podcast and welcome back, we should say. Well, it's very exciting to be here. I'm surprised it's taken three and a half years to get me back. <laughs> well, you know, th there's only so much of a really good thing that, uh, that our <laughs> listeners can uh, enjoy. So let's dive into that a little bit. So 
But you've been focused on the people aspects of startups, as I've described it, for, for 20 years. Yeah. What have you learned mostly during that time? And how have you changed? Well, when you start with your founding, growing, building, selling companies, and then you go to investing, the craft of that is very different. But I think um, the investing side really is striking about how statistically unlikely it is to build a massive company. You know, you might see two and a half thousand companies, you might invest in 25, and you might make the vast majority of your returns from two or three. I mean, that's over, it's an unusual decade to, yeah. to lead through, right? And so it's, you know, great ideas don't really translate into massive companies. It's the combination of great founders combined with the great people that they bring into that project through time. And that can flex quite a lot, you know, during the different stages and development of the business between, you know, a local national company in a single office with a small group of people to, you know, an international company that's dominating a category on a global level with several offices around the world with different cultures and people and, you know, the complication of synthesizing all of that. So add a bit of luck, a little bit of timing. But mostly I come back to the fact that I think, you know, it's the combination of the things that remarkable people create when they're together. That's the big difference. Kind of alchemy. Yeah. That happens when you put extraordinary people in the, in the same room on the same vision. But let's go right back to the beginning of the investment process and the kind of startup journey. Now, admittedly, when we're investing, the, the company has probably been around for, for two or three years. But what do you look for in the founders when you first invest? Well, the first thing is I actually start by being more obsessed with the market and the business model. So I'm a bit of a business model geek. If that's the only area that I'm geeky outside of people, it would be that area. And then it's hard to quantify with the founders, but you know, it's something that's a little bit arresting or quite arresting. It's something that sort of somewhat stops you in your tracks. And that's why it, it can be hard to, to quantify. And I think that's really because of the kind of context that you're operating in, you know, to sort of complete the journey and build a category leading business, you know, that possibly is going to transform the way an industry operates, then that individual is going to go through something of an inhumane process and period and experience in their life. And so just on one level, it's like, you know, how is this individual going to take this idea or this small team that they've assembled and add a million a month, then two million a month, then three million a month? How are they going to address some of the biggest markets in the world? How are they going to raise $10 million followed by $20 million followed by... You know, these are the sort of things that are running in the back of someone's mind when they're investing. So, you know, of course you need people that are super smart, need people that, you know, are really self-aware and able to grow at this alarming rate. They need to be able to either build or sell technology propositions and they need to carry a phrase that we have at notion they need to carry an entire industry if everyone's going to come out of this with a great outcome and really one back to we had a, had at message labs i always get this sort of tingly feeling when you start to build a team that no one wants to compete with and you know we talk to founders about that a lot and so you know that's a rare person or it's a rare group of people and you should be in the room when you're with a founder and maybe they're pitching or you're talking or you're workshopping around the things that they're doing, there should be something that is somewhat arresting around that experience because the context of how venture investing works, you know, is, it is about creating these 
big companies and and the extraordinary returns that come come from those big companies. You know, obviously, well, every one of us is is different, but there are some common characteristics that you see in the most extraordinary founders. And I think we've talked about it before in terms of the concept of creative destructionism. Is that something that, that kind of resonates with you and you see common to the founders that, that you're investing in? Yeah, I mean, we talk about real conviction-led founders. So I think good founders believe the world should work differently. And then they're crazy enough to enter the fray and take that idea or that hypothesis to market, start building an application. They tend to not give up on that dream or their idea. I think the great founders do something different. They do that, but then they're self-aware enough to realize that the original idea is, is limited. It's an alpha, it's a test, it's a hypothesis, it's uh, under-informed, it's not been market-tested. What I see them do is that they tend to center around a kind of an industry pain. I tend to invest in a lot of vertical application plays, whether that's you know, B2B2B, B2B2C. And so now that pain will, is a pain that won't go away. So it's, it's almost like it's constant. It needs solving. It's making businesses suffer. So they then are able to pivot around that focus on the pain that exists within the market that therefore would drive an adoption curve you know, that will drive some transition to an old way of doing business to a new way of doing business. You know, whether that's, for example, booking a hotel via triptease or finding an unskilled job via paid jobs or delivering translation as a service at Unbabble, they're fundamentally different to whatever has come before them. And so they've changed the economics or the liquidity of those markets. That's definitely not the starting idea, but it's what they rapidly iterated to. So great founders, it's a lot to do with the level of comfort they are within this abstract world and their ability to sort of discard what maybe firmly held beliefs that they had at the beginning of the idea or the firmly held beliefs that the market has about how the market should operate and reimagine that market in a completely different way to discard the sort of market norms. And they do this quicker than anybody else. So, you know, we've always got a clock that's ticking. As soon as you get a venture investment, literally the clock, someone is standing there with a dog whistle and a stopwatch, and it's, you know, quarter in, quarter out, quarter in, quarter out. And so they build organizations that do it quicker than anybody else. It's a totally nonlinear experience, and they're comfortable with that. So I think they are real A-player type people, but they have a kind of C-minus, can-do-better attitude. They are really very freed up in their way that they're able to process information and re-spin that information into new thoughts and ideas. But in, And if they can find an industry or a market pain that ultimately needs to get solved in the coming decade, it fundamentally has to get solved, then you know they can build a big business and they can build that quickly. I know you focus on a lot on the, the leader transformation and the team transformation. Let's kind of talk about specifically at the, the point at which you're investing. At Series A. Now, I know that every company is, is different, but what kind of transformation of the founder and the evolution of the team do you look for? And how quickly does this need to happen? Assuming I've pressed the button, the clock is now counting down, I've got 18 months or maybe, maybe two years at the absolute most. So what do you need to see happen? Well, I think the first thing, I don't like the question too much because I think it's too uh, self-limiting to talk about a typical founder. Yeah. So I think none of my kids are alike, and so no founder is alike. So let's just put that one on the table. 
But what I would say is that, the, you know, I do deal with a lot of the game-changing hiring with founders and the advice that I give to them, bearing in mind that as soon as you make the investment, we will already be talking about leadership debt and leadership <coughs> gaps in the startup and some of the big bets. The big bets that a founder is going to make after the investment is they're going to spend a lot of money on two or three people to help them transform an industry. And so the conversation there is really about what I call this kind of pyramid value. And the foundations of that pyramid, you know, is 100% built on chemistry. Because you're going to dedicate a group of relationships to doing things that are absolutely extraordinary. And that will test those relationships to the limit. And so without that chemistry, I think, you know, that alchemy is very, very difficult. And then the critical layer that sits above that is what we call repeat pedigree. So how demonstrable is it that this person that they're going to hire has gone through the level of scale required for the next couple of years? You know, that whole, you know, adding a million a month, then two million a month, then adding three million a month, keeping that revenue, keeping customers super happy and building these unusual economics for markets. So that repeat pedigree is really, really important. And then the, the little bit that most people obsess about is this little bit at the top called the job description which I obsess the least about because I obsess about the chemistry and the repeat pedigree. So when I play that back to say, okay, well now I'm about to forge a relationship with a founder, then that pyramid is my point of reference really Mm -hmm. for thinking about the relationship with that founder. So I genuinely really feel about the chemistry that I have with the founder. And I think about, you know, is this an individual that I will want to build a massive company do we think we've got the foundations of chemistry that will enable us to do that because you know the shit is going to keep hitting the fan this stuff isn't simple so we will have survival events in the business these are the realities of getting through the startup grow up scale up phase and so how's the relationship going to pan how is our relationship going to work and operate in these extreme situations do we have deep pools of resilience and potential that we can draw on do we have that you know, collectively. And then, you know, have they done something similar before or this is really a first-time founder where we really think about, you know, what do we need to wrap around those founders and what do they think about that? So Mm -hmm. quite often I'm talking about the upgrading of the team, you know, well before we get talking about term sheets and stuff like that. And, you know, that's a really good test of a relationship because I don't have any of the answers. I just have lots of the questions. And so when you're testing the relationship with things like how we're going to upgrade the team or, you know, so on and so forth, then a lot about whether you can operate together sort of comes out in that discussion. So. There's so many things I'd like to follow up from that, but there's one, one particular piece, which is about, you talked about the startup grow up scale up journey, and you talked about the fact that this is, this in many instances, this is non-linear, you know, this extraordinary compounding growth that these organisations go on. And so startup, they're going from one to five million, and it's mostly about discovery and iteration. Well, now I'm going into a grow-up phase, which is my, my kind of teenage years where I'm actually, say, five to 25 million, and I'm trying to figure out how to build inherent repeatability and scalability into a business. And then I'm at 25, say, 50 million, and I'm, I'm really kind of driving for incredible growth to try and get really big, really fast. I mean, that is a, an extraordinary exponential journey. Can humans... Grow that fast? No. <laughs> the truth is it's easier to say that they can't because it's unlikely that yeah. they will be able to. So when you accept that, if you accept that and say, okay, well, you know, they certainly can't do it without a lot of damage or a huge amount of personal costs. 
to themselves and the relationships that they already have. But to a lesser or great extent, you kind of accept that. So you need to, you know, for me, they need to be able to focus and feel comfortable about the fact can they can they work on their inner self, the deep pools of resilience, these deep pools of potential, and their ability to learn, you know, the broader basics of what they're about to go through. But then it comes to like who, you know, how do they surround themselves with incredible people that are fit for that stage, the stage that they're going to go through, and their ability to kind of curate that those periods. And a lot of this is a lot of people talk about ambition, but I always think about ambition is demonstrated in the decisions that you make and the behaviours that you have. And so the ability for them to upgrade all of their people all of the time, you know, and upgrade their strategy all of the time. You know, that tips the odds in their favour. If they're the individual that's got to, let's say, you know, they've got through the A, they've got through the B, and they're already at a, they're all net ready now in a, a scarce data point. They're the person that's re-articulated the initial phase of, of how this industry might work. And so they're probably the right person to re-articulate how the industry's going to work in five to ten years too, if you see what I mean. They just need the right people and the right relationships around them to help them to sort of go through that journey. I think that's the way that I think about it. You play a pivotal role, certainly, in terms of helping the, the rest of us at, at Notion to understand this. And, and increasingly with the founders, this kind of concept of the, the game changer, which to a certain extent ties into you know, your ability to deliver on that exponential journey is based upon your ability to bring extraordinary people alongside you, game changers. Why is that so important and probably so, so hard to do? I re- genuinely believe that you can see these game changers and transformative people in the PL of the business. When you look back, you didn't necessarily know it was that individual. And I've got images of people's faces right now in my head when I think, when I look back and, you know, let's say back at Message Labs and, and we hired that individual, I was betting on the chance that they could transform the business. But I didn't know that they could or that we could together, you know, a group of people. But then when you look back and you see it, maybe you see it in the product, you see it in the where you're addressing a market, you can see it in the PL. It really is quite compelling. So, you know, we built a proprietary data set on the evolution of leadership teams that build unicorns after the A round. And this has developed totally confirmed, it totally confirmed a number of the beliefs that we had as a team that's been investing in building or investing in software as a service businesses for 20 years. So and it was the massive tech companies is really a talent-driven economy. And what we used to do is we used to think, well, what's our market share of remarkable people? Because it's like, you know, when you're in a tight market and you think if you're consuming all the remarkable people, your competitors aren't getting, you know, we used, that's how we used to think about it when we were building, a, building message labs. So what we found once we created this statistical database is that unicorns have a significantly high percentage of VPs and above that have degrees from top 100 universities statistically significant but they also have statistically higher percentage of vps and above who have no degrees whatsoever so people like me and so what they're fundamentally doing is regardless of how they how those individuals have been measured in the past or are measured now they're hiring people that they believe are at the top of their game they also what we've found is that they upgrade quicker so non-unicorns upgrade far slower and unicorns. We wasn't necessarily expecting to see that in the data set, but it was there as clear as day. And, you know, it's great that Maddie at Notion, who runs our talent practice, has established this data set that's rapidly evolving. 
And it reinforces a lot of what we've obsessed about for about 20 years. So what happens when that, when you get to that realization is, well, you've gone from a belief to you've gone to an absolute realization that there's firm evidence for this. And it just fuels, you know, our commitment to embedding on the right people and then surrounding the right people around those people. So that's really liberating for us. So I think that's why game changes are, are really important. You know, I might spend three, four years hunting somebody that I believe and have isolated as a game changer. And what's funny is that notion is when I send out a little WhatsApp notification that I've just hired one of them, they feel my feet, my feeling, the feeling that I transmit is almost like I've just done an investment or I've just had an exit. That's how important the sort of talent game is for me. Mm-hmm. And every, literally every, everyone will notice that. And that's because these people are fundamental to the success of the business. They're fundamental to the pressure cooker that the founder and the surrounding team are under. And they're essential to being able to re- both reimagine and create these new industry business models that you know we're after. So we kind of talked about two aspects of you know one the founder transforming themselves, two the the, the founder transforming and leveling up their team. But one of the things you also mentioned earlier was about the importance of leveling up strategy. And as you go through those different life stages, the the, the strategy that's required is going to change. How do you think about helping founders? to balance the kind of the, the strategic challenges of the journey and the short, medium, t- long-term thinking. I think you want all of my little boxes of tricks, don't you? Yes, yes, of course we do. Well, I've hacked a sort of startup version of the McKinsey Three Horizons model. That's fundamentally what I use. So in its simplest form, when I'm talking to founders, Horizon One is, th- that's the proposition, the ideal customer profile and the business model that you're in today. You know, that's typically the, the, the investment that we're making is in that first horizon. Horizon three could be several years out. We may never ever get there. You know, it's how, how they've transformed the industry. You know, do they have a dominant market share? Does the industry operate in a new norm curated by, by them and the industry participants, if you like, are adopting that platform? And why are they gonna do that? They're gonna do that to get more access to volume, to get better economics, because you've created more liquidity in the market. So you've carried the whole industry and you now are effectively the rails that that industry is running on in the future. That's Horizon 3. So Horizon 2 is somewhere in between. It's slightly more near term and it's where you're segueing from out of Horizon 1 into Horizon 2. And, you know, it's often the graveyard. It's where insufficient strategic rigor or execution has been invested. And mostly I find that it's because founders haven't invested in that horizon you know, I believe founders need to lead Horizon 2 and 3 with a, like it's probably a small crack team and they need to backfill Horizon 1 with brilliant people. So, you know, let's just split that out a little bit. So let's say we've getting out, we've got a first-time founder that's found a hole in the market and there's a big pain in that market and they're starting to solve that and they've created some momentum, they've got some investment and their team's growing, they've gone from a dozen or so people and they're like 20, 30, 40 people. And they're thinking about going, they need to take this internationally and so on and so forth. So the complexity of Horizon 1, as in owning and managing that problem, is going up. Do I want them managing that after they've completely rearticulated and reimagined that market? Or do I want them to be reimagining how the industry is going to work in its entirety? Well, I tend to find that, you know, founders aren't founders because they want to manage things. 
they're founders because they can imagine things differently and they can bring people together. And so, you know, I tend to be encouraging them to really think about how much time, money, people are invested in the creation of Horizon 2 and 3 and who with great pedigree is, is being brought into the business to really, uh, and I'm oversimplifying it, manage Horizon 1, like the business that we're in. And, you know, I think that's that just ha- changing the context like that really frees founders up to really think about what it is that they want to do. How is it that they need to specialize? What is their, the, the innate skill that they have as an individual that might apply to that specialization? That means that if they spend more time doing that, do we create more value versus spending more time doing other things? that might be far more onerous and need more experience, for example. And so I think that's a the way. So you're going to end up with a business that operates with on multiple time horizons. And so, for example, I would be one of the first people that say, okay, how much money should we be investing in, in labs? And what are we creating that we are going to be able to layer on top of our asset that can drive more market share, delight the customers, and think about delivering this technology in a unique way that's adjacent to the way that we're doing it. That, to me, is a way of thinking about future horizons rather than month-end, quarter-end budget cycles, etc. You have to be able to balance the two. I mean, I, I love the phrase you used there. They didn't start this company to manage people. They, they started the company to imagine a different future. But of course, we've got to do both. 100%. And be operationally excellent and highly innovative at the same time, which is, which is really what we see in the very best technology companies on the planet. Do you have any particular people that you think about as being kind of exemplars of this, this type of approach? Yeah. Well, Dennis Foy, who, who um, was at New Voice Media, I know he's a big fan of the model and has done it in much larger businesses. I think, um, you know, we have a whole cadre of founders that are using the model now. We have a podcast by Dennis in the previous version, so if people are interested in that, they can listen. To I'm always playing exactly what's in front of me, so I, ha- I don't probably have enough time to think who else is using it. But I know we're using it. I know Dennis is a big fan. And a lot of the founders in Notion use it as a tool to guide them as to, you know, how do they think about the way that they envision the business? How do they think about the way that they are pinning strategy towards different time horizons? How do they invest in those different time horizons? Whether they're, whether something is pure research or whether something is mocking up alphas of different types of product that they can take to market that's related to their, their core products and so on and so forth. There's so many things I'd like to I'd like to follow up on, but one other thing you said, which is about looking back at companies, you can see the impact of game changes in the PL. You've got some examples in your mind, I'm sure, when you were when you were saying that. Do you want to can you kind of just elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, you know, so if you take message labs, we could have had lots of different arguments about like, you know, who were the top five people that really transformed or sustained that really, really high growth period over those eight years. And um, there are some names that are on everybody's list. And one of those would be Jonathan Gow joined. And when we had to pivot from being 100% indirect, which was a perfect strategy that didn't work and um, perfectly executed, <laughs> but didn't work. And we had to move to a direct model with indirect fulfillment. And we were like 80% off plan for the year after taking a significant investment. So, you know, it was a real high stakes game. Uh, we hired Jonathan and, you know, he became global head of sales over the next couple of years. And we went on a huge, huge run of month over month, Q over Q booking growth. And, you know, that was one of the big bedrocks that enabled us to, to grow very fast. So that would have been one 
way back when we were building companies. I think as an investor, you know, I was in a situation where we had this amazing technology proposition and I fundamentally believed in it. I fundamentally believed in the pain in the market. But quite often when you're investing, the revenue that represents the proposition that you're investing in is not all of the revenue of the company. And the idle customer profile group that you're going to sell to is not all the companies that they've sold to. It's a smaller set. So you end up investing in a business that might have, say, a million of revenue, but it's only got, let's say, 400k of revenue of the thing that you really are backing. So there's all sorts of challenges about that. And as you're going through that, you're learning about the the leadership debt and the leadership gap. And the kind of conversation with a particular founder was that I fundamentally believe that we can do this, but I don't believe that we have the sort of um, commercial nows. This is only going to happen as the way you articulate it if many, 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 many companies around the world buy this. And I think it's a big gap. So you need to find your commercial partner to take and help you take this proposition to market. So if we then fast forward three or four months, we run a search and we've got three candidates in the final drafting. Now, one is an amazing guy who's on the way up. He's the person that most founders would have hired. And the reason why that is because they can afford it. Mm-hmm. Now, the other two are pretty expensive. So they're like two, two X, at least two X, the cost of the third. And my favorite one was the person that came second and the founder's favorite because of the chemistry model was the one that came first. And I was compelled by the argument to hire this individual. What we actually did is we hired the number one and the number three. So we somewhat ignored the amount of capital that we had available or the normal budget that we would apply. We spent 80% of the entire gross margin of the company (laughs) on an individual. So it's a big bet. When you make these big bets, you're making these big bets if you fundamentally believe in the value creation that these individuals are going to bring to the organization. And, you know, we had to take other board members, maybe more conservative, through the rationale for that. And it might be, as I said, that, you know, we all run out of money three months earlier. But imagine the clip that we'll be growing at three months earlier if we hire exactly the right people that translate what we're doing into value. And so we did that and then takes a little bit of time to get going. And then, you know, in the first year, the the business grew 12x. So, you know, you can look at that and there's there's, there's not just an individual, there's a process, there's a mindset, there's 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 a couple of people that are hired. And there is a journey that, that the business goes on and the individuals go on and, and then there's the, you know, the, the, how the performance of the business changes. And so, you know, that would be a particular example mm. in my mother notion portfolio. And, and I think if we sat down, spent another half an hour, we could probably come up with another couple of dozen examples of, of those. As you say, sometimes you're making those bets and you don't know actually how it's going to play out but i think now we're getting to the point where we can start to look back and see that impact chris it's been a fascinating conversation as ever um if anybody's interested in learning more a bit more about jonathan gale he's in the previous podcast and in the next podcast we're going to be talking to maddie cross and maddie is our director of talent and she she's really kind of turned this concept of the game changer into a discipline and we're going to be exploring the whys and hows of how to hire ever more extraordinary game-changing people so we look forward to that uh, episode as well chris thank you as ever always uh, a pleasure to talk to you it was wonderful thank you brilliant
Remember, you can find an in-depth write-up of this interview along with the dozens and dozens we've done on the Notion website at notion.vc under resources. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcast or follow us on Spotify and Google Podcast. Thank you.